Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. These are some of my happy sounds. This episode, we're taking you to one of our favorite places. The restaurant. Come dine with me, as they say on Channel 4. Nikki, nobody outside of the UK knows what that show is. Missing out. But anyway, we are indeed dining out this episode. And, you know, restaurants are just one of those things. They seem like they've been around forever. But then that can't be true. I mean, our ancestors might have gone to each other's caves for a bite to eat, but I don't think there would have been a menu and wait staff. So who invented the restaurant? And how did the restaurant's invention change society? Well, and how did restaurants change along with society? So many questions. And as usual, we've got all the surprising stories and behind-the-scenes secrets. That's right, you're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. Nikki, as you pointed out, our early ancestors were not sitting down to a table covered with a pristine white tablecloth and listening to the day's specials. But throughout history, people on the road, people away from home, they would have needed somewhere to eat. And if you have an urban society, you need to have places where people who, say, are from the countryside and going to a market uh, can have a meal. So there always have been taverns, inns, takeout places. That's Paul Friedman. He's a medieval historian at Yale and the author of a new book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America. But it wasn't just travelers who needed a place to eat. In medieval European cities, a lot of people didn't have kitchens, and these city dwellers might have gone to food stalls to pick up a snack or a loaf of bread. Rebecca Spang wrote a book called The Invention of the Restaurant, and she says these kitchenless medieval city dwellers At least in Paris, they might have gone out for a sit-down meal. We still see signs in France today for a traiteur who sells prepared foods, sort of like a caterer for takeout. These traiteurs or caterers in the 17th and 18th century also hosted meals on their own premises at specific times, so one o'clock in the afternoon for dinner. But Paul's point is none of these food stalls or inns or traiteurs None of them are really the same thing as a restaurant. What a restaurant is that's different from those kinds of age-old establishments is that it offers a wider choice. First, a choice of 
what you want to eat. It has a menu. You don't just sort of settle for whatever they're cooking. Second, there's choice of times. It's not a set meal served at a particular time. And third, choice of who you eat with. The tradition at inns is that you sort of eat at a common table, or maybe you eat in your room. But the idea of separate tables for parties of three, four, two, whatever, is typical of a restaurant. You might have noticed, so far we've been talking about Europe. We're going to be focusing on Europe and North America this episode. There are different dining out traditions in other parts of the world. This episode, we're telling the story of the invention of the Western-style restaurant. And actually, the weird thing is that the restaurant, it didn't start out as a place to eat. Restaurant started out as the word for soup. The word restaurant is from the French verb se restaurer, meaning to restore yourself. And so a restaurant is a food you use to restore yourself. It's a restorative. And these restoratives are a sort of bouillon made with very little additional water. So what you're basically doing is sweating a great deal of meat over fairly high heat so that it releases its juices. I don't know, if you think about something like bovril or marmite or a bouillon cube in its most condensed form with just a bit of liquid added. So like today's bone broth, that's a restaurant. Or a mug of bovril when you're feeling sick, same idea. I don't know what bovril is. like you haven't lived, Cynthia. (laughs) Bovril is a salty, umami-ish, meaty paste that you put on buttered toast mostly. And then you can have a mug of it dissolved in boiling water when you're feeling poorly. It's what makes Britain strong. I think I'll stick with Marmite. That's the vegetarian version. But anyway, back to our original restorative, or restaurant. How does it transform from a soup to a place? Meet Matarin Rose de Chantoiseau, an entrepreneur in 1760s Paris. Rose de Chantoiseau attempted a great many different startup ventures. One of these was that he seems, or at least he was credited at the time, with having invented the restaurant. Rose de Chantoiseau seems to have intuited that there was a market for a place you could go to consume these restoratives in public. He was right. Within just a few years, there are several dozen of these so-called restorers' rooms located chiefly in the most central, prosperous commercial parts of Paris. Restorers' rooms, or in the original French, salle de restaurant. And as people got comfortable with these new rooms, they just dropped the salle de and called them restaurant. But don't picture your local bistro here. At this point in time, in 1760s Paris, these first restaurants have this spa vibe. They're all about health and delicate broths. When you go to a restaurant, you do so because you need to be restored. You're in need of restoration. When something new like a restaurant is invented, there's usually something going on in society that makes it the right, the ripe time for the invention. In 1760s Paris, people were obsessed with health and also with this idea of sensitivity. It's all tied into these new Enlightenment ideas about how we sense the world through our nerves and how our bodies respond to those nervous sensations. One way of demonstrating the acuity of one's nerves is to be very sensitive to things. These restaurants started off serving just those restorative drinks, those meaty broths, but they soon added to their menu. Of course, all these dishes had to be very light for their very sensitive guests. You know, they might be sensitive to different things. 
So from the beginning, restaurateurs had to offer a variety of bouillons and the soft-boiled eggs, the rice pudding, the pasta with a little bit of butter and parmesan to address the various sorts of sensitivities uh, that their clientele might manifest. The belief at the time was that if a sensitive person, the kind of person who could see beauty and truth in the world, if that sensitive, refined individual ate, God forbid, a steak or a big hunk of ham, well, I mean, it would overwhelm their system. That food is going to sit in your stomach. It's not going to be properly digested. It's going to give off gases. These vapors will rise to your head. They may cause diluted thinking. Um, or they may cause you to burst into tears unexpectedly. If we haven't made it perfectly obvious by the way we've been describing the types of people who might have been called sensitive, these were elites who had the time to read and think about art and philosophy, and they very much wanted to be seen as someone who might burst into tears if they ate a steak. And that's why these restaurants caught on. They were a place to show the world that you were a sensitive person. There are a number of elements of these restaurants that are completely new. Like Paul said, you can eat a meal whenever you want. You can sit with only your friends and family, not at a big communal innkeeper's table. You can order just what you want from a menu. This is pretty revolutionary, and it's all to help those sensitive individuals be sensitive in public. And high society in 1760s and 1770s Paris... They loved these new restaurants. This public space, it wasn't just for men for a change. The culture of sensibility is a very feminine culture. And the very first restaurateurs are advertising that this is a suitable place for ladies. As time goes by, the restaurant keeps going strong. It's not just a flash-in-the-pan 1760s fad. And a few things factor into that sustained growth. First, there's the French Revolution. Lots of aristocrats and royal relations are becoming intimate with the sharp end of a guillotine. Others see the way things are headed and get the hell out of Dodge. And while they have time to pack up their family jewels and some other cherished bits of property, they leave their servants behind. So we have a bunch of servants, chefs, sous chefs, pastry cooks, all of whom have been cooking at court and at big aristocratic households for decades who are out of work. And what do they do? They open restaurants. And then something else happens. After the French Revolution, the economy wasn't so awesome. But that made France a fantastic, inexpensive tourist destination. So after 1815, when British and to some extent North American travelers flock to France, because it's cheap at that point, and also because they're just curious to see all the changes that have been wrought by the revolution and the Napoleonic era, one of the changes they see is restaurants, which they find remarkable. These restaurant places, they just don't exist in London or Philadelphia or Boston. And tourists love them. It's like a fun thing to do when in Paris. By this point, restaurants have started expanding their menus, too. So you're going to go out to have your bouillon. And maybe, in fact, its effects are so miraculous that you do feel quite a bit restored. And you think that, well, maybe you could eat, oh, a couple of ounces of salmon. Or maybe some asparagus. And before you know it, you have a full menu. And suddenly, restaurants are a little bit more like the places we know and love today, rather than being special broth-drinking environments for the sensitive. Okay, so now Paris has restaurants that we'd probably recognize as restaurants. But when did they expand beyond Paris? Paul Friedman has traced the dawn of the restaurant in the United States for his book, The Ten Restaurants That Changed America. 
in America, the first real successful restaurant is Delmonico's in New York, and that's in 1830. Delmonico's was right downtown in the heart of what is now the financial district. And it began as a pastry shop. Like many or most restaurants, it was opened by immigrants, in this case, two brothers from the Italian part of Switzerland. Nevertheless, although they were from Switzerland and although they were, uh, you know, if you like, ethnically Italian, the restaurant was French. So how does a pastry shop run by two Swiss become a restaurant and why? I guess they decided the time was ripe to open a restaurant whose model was that of Paris. New York was rich enough, sophisticated enough, had enough people who would be willing to try this relatively new experience. And they were right in there, guess. The food at Delmonico's was an interesting mix. On the one hand, you know, given the French origin of the whole concept of a restaurant, it's not surprising that the menu was pretty much in that same model of high-end French cuisine. But on the other hand, they didn't really have much of a choice about where they got their food because there wasn't long-distance refrigerated shipping. So basically, the menu was what today we'd call locavore. They offered a, a menu of tremendous variety French-inspired dishes, and then ingredients that were American. So things like lobsters, American oysters, American turtle, terrapin, which was uh, all the rage throughout the 19th century. Paul has some dreams of what he'd like to taste from the Delmonico's menu. Salmon a la Rothschild, for example, which is a whole salmon stuffed with fish, such as whiting, and then covered with a crust and served with a champagne sauce. Canvasback duck is the one that enchants me most. Canvasback duck, like terrapin, is a Chesapeake Bay specialty. The ducks are kind of larger than normal ducks. They're, they're wild, of course. And they would be served with some kind of celery sauce or celery accompaniment. These ducks, too, ate the wild celery that used to grow along the Chesapeake Bay banks. And if I could sort of go back and have one dish that I've never had before that was a specialty of Delmonico's. It would be the canvasback ducks. So who was enjoying this canvasback duck and salmonella Rothschild? Rich people, just like at the original restaurants in Paris. No poor people could afford it. Sorry. And then, obviously, at this stage in American history, the crowd was mostly white. Black people, as a general rule, weren't particularly welcome. And no kids, heaven forbid. And no unaccompanied women, either alone or in groups of only women. Women were only welcome if they were accompanied by men. But the American restaurant has evolved since Delmonico's in ways both good and bad. And Paul picked nine other restaurants that symbolize some of those major changes. We can't cover them all. For that, you should pick up a copy of the book. But we chose three that signal changes in who was welcome in restaurants. First up, Schraft's. What was particularly important about Schraft's was that it catered to those women who were not allowed into places like Delmonico's. Schraff started in New York as an ice cream parlor, but it soon began serving sandwiches and light lunch dishes, mostly to women on their own or in groups, taking a break from a hard day's shopping or on an office lunch break. By the 1900s, women were working in shops as cashiers or as clerks in retail or stenographers and secretaries in offices, and they wanted a nice place to eat. In other words, women were now inhabiting public life and public space more than ever before. They weren't just domestic creatures. I mean, this is the time of the suffragette movement. 
And so it makes sense for women to have a public space to eat in, too. There's another interesting thing about shrafts, and that's the food. Frankly, it wasn't thought to be particularly delicious. But up until the Civil War, there wasn't a separation between women's food and men's food. Shrafts thought women might want to eat something different just for them. And that was light food. That is to say, at the time, that would include things like chicken croquettes or things with cream sauces, chicken a la king, or a little later cottage cheese, things that we may not think of now as light, but that were certainly considered light in the early 20th century. And then the other part of the program was ice cream. Uh, The notion is that women like to have light main courses and fancy desserts. And uh, I am not convinced that this is what women historically or now actually like. But I will say that my experience at Shrafts, which was with my grandmother, my grandmother would order cottage cheese and fruit as an entree and then top it off with an ice cream sundae or a banana split. So she she definitely fit the model. Shrafts was open for many decades, so we asked people what they remember about eating there. Well, I went to Shrafts as a, possibly as early as 10, my, I, and sometimes as a, a, a young teenager, but with my mom, I definitely remember it being a genteel place. As far as my memories of, of eating at Shrafts, it was just, I don't know if I would have used the word elegant back then, but it was. And I, I, that's probably where I developed my great love of coffee ice cream. The thing is, ice cream and elegant tablecloths aside... Shrafts might have been revolutionary in the 1900s, but by the 1960s, the women's movement had moved on. Paul said his mom, she had a PhD and she worked outside the home, she would not be caught dead in Shrafts. Because it was for people like my grandmother. My grandmother didn't work. My grandmother loved shopping. My grandmother loved playing cards, uh, watching soap operas on TV, All, all things that my mother, I mean, my mother loved her mother, but she certainly didn't see her as a model. Shrafts may have been undone by the women's movement of the 60s, but there is no doubt it was revolutionary for women in its day. But really, when we say women, we mean mostly white women. At the start of the 20th century, there are still a lot of people in the U.S. who don't have a place where they're truly welcomed, a place where the food and the decor is somehow geared towards them. But what about African-Americans? And what about kids? Kids could go to Shrafts, like Paul did and some of our listeners did. But really, it was more of a thing where they were just tolerated if they were quiet and well-behaved. It wasn't like there was a kid's menu especially for them. So how did everyone else get their place at the table? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you're listening to our show, then you already know how vital good food is to the human experience. Trying something new can be a truly transcendent experience. Years ago, I visited northern Thailand with a friend. We ate such amazing local food there. So when the hotel where we were staying offered, quote, Western breakfast, or what they called Thai breakfast, I thought, sure, Thai breakfast. Basically, it was greens with a kind of savory fish sauce. I loved it, and it changed my life. It made me rethink what I'd prefer to be eating for breakfast. I've eaten a vegetable-forward breakfast nearly every day since then, and every morning I'm reminded of the incredible experience experiences I had in Thailand. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex/youknowreserve to learn more. Okay, it's 1960 in New York City. Schrafts is no longer quite so cool. And there's another thing that's happening in New York. The African-American population has exploded. This is the tail end of the Great Migration from the South, so Harlem is really booming. And Sylvia opened Sylvia's. It was a restaurant among a number of restaurants that served the community, the African-American community of Harlem. It was created in 1962 by Sylvia Woods, who took over what had been a small luncheonette. Uh, that she had worked at, and she bought out the former owner. Sylvia's customers are neighborhood folks. It was a restaurant run by a Black woman and where Black people felt welcomed and comfortable. And the food Sylvia served is kind of the food she grew up with in South Carolina. Fried chicken, smothered pork chops, chicken gizzards, chicken liver, meatloaf, roast beef. So some things that we would consider to be not so much Southern, but kind of standard American food. A lot of the side dishes are very Southern, like um, collard greens, black-eyed peas, candied sweet potatoes. Until this point, African-Americans hadn't marked their food as different. They didn't call out aspects of their dishes that made black Southern food different from white Southern food. The previous strategy was kind of assimilation. But in the 1960s, that changed. And that pride in distinctive black Southern food that led to a new name, soul food, to Paul, this is a turning point that Sylvia's really highlights. Soul food is an identity marker. So it comes in the 1960s as an aspect of Black cultural assertion. It's not that integration was exactly denounced or renounced, but that the identity of Black people as having a culture that was separate was emphasized. And so what had previously been called Southern food or down home was now more identified not just with a generic South, in which case it's shared a lot of attributes with white food, but became the soul of Black people, the uh, expression of their heart and uh, of their soul through food. And Sylvia's was a hit. It became something bigger than a restaurant. It became a symbol. It expanded and became always a neighborhood place, but also a place for local politicians, African-American entertainment and sports stars. Taylor Thompson grew up in nearby New Jersey. Sylvia's is still popular today, and Taylor remembers going as a kid a couple decades ago. The difference between Sylvia's and the restaurants in my hometown is that Sylvia's was decorated like your your grandmother or your great aunt's like dining room. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, like soul food, like food that you don't get at 
your neighborhood diner or Red Lobster. Sylvia's ended up being almost exclusively for black people, at least at first. It wasn't on purpose. They didn't discriminate. Well, white people weren't eating at Sylvia's. The uh, New York Magazine critic Gail Green in the 1970s uh, visited Sylvia's, but uh, the way she described it at the time was as if this was an almost ill-advised adventure. She said that her editor wondered whether they weren't recommending to their readers to doing something dangerous. That is to say, their presumably white readers uh, might be tempted to go to Harlem, and wasn't that really uh, like taking your life into your own hands? So it was off the map as far as white New Yorkers were concerned. Today, bus tours filled with white people stop off at Sylvia's in Harlem. It's a major tourist landmark and a stop on any politician's campaign trail, too. After a strong victory in the New Hampshire primary over Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders had breakfast this morning in Harlem at Sylvia's Soul Food Restaurant with Reverend Al Sharpton. So Schraff's welcomed women. Sylvia's highlighted soul food and welcomed African-Americans and later tourists to eat in Harlem. But there's another group that doesn't really have an iconic restaurant that particularly caters to them yet, and that's children. Well, kids are a problem because you can cater to kids, but then you're going to have trouble retaining customers who come there without kids because kids are perceived as, you know, creating a lot of noise and disruption. And the kid issue brings us to the distinctive orange and blue triangle Hojo's. Howard Johnson's uh, was, uh, to use a term that only later came into existence, family-friendly and designed to be family-friendly. Next up... They entertained kids. They had oversized lollipops. They had cookies and the ice cream. That ice cream, that's what writer and listener Maren McKenna remembers best from her childhood. I spent most of my childhood in England, where at the time, food was not great. My father brought us back to the States so he could take a job in Texas, which involved driving our entire family in two cars from New York all the way to Houston. On the first night that we were on the road, we stopped at a Howard Johnson's, and as a special treat, we were allowed to have ice cream. I ordered black raspberry, which seemed a completely impossible thing that couldn't exist. And when it arrived, it was enormous, and it was delicious, and it was fuchsia, and I ate it all. Road tripping and black raspberry ice cream. That's the other big Howard Johnson's innovation, catering to America's new automobile culture. Howard Johnson started in New England in the 1920s as an ice cream stand, sort of like Schraft's. But by the end of the 1950s, America began to be crisscrossed by all these new interstate highways. And Howard Johnson saw an opportunity. The idea was that you could see it so that going 60 miles an hour, you'd have enough time, plenty of time to make your decision to slow down and to pull into the parking lot. Another way of doing that, of course, is having billboards. But Howard Deering Johnson, the founder of the company, considered billboards to be tacky. And so instead of having billboards, he had a very identifiable look to the place in terms of colors, the blue and orange look, uh, in terms of the shape of the buildings. So you can see it from the highway. Kids are welcome. But what about the food at Hojo's? We know there was ice cream, but was there anything else original about the food? We asked listener Scott Kuehler what he remembers. I remember doing the absolute 60s America family vacation thing where we would pile into a Dodge or something like that and pound, you know, hundreds of miles over these 
interstate highways. And then when it was dinner time, it was Howard Johnson's. And I just remember learning to order this mountain of fried clams, which I didn't know at the time were clam strips. So I feel like it was my first sense of like life beyond the bologna sandwich. Scott is not alone. When we asked listeners and friends what they remember about Hojo's, they almost all mentioned fried clams. It doesn't really occur to people unless you pointed out how strange this is. Fried clams are not an American staple, or they certainly weren't something that anybody had heard of until Howard Johnson uh, popularized them, except maybe people in Cape Cod or the Maine coast, but a tiny, tiny percentage of the population had ever had any experience with them. But really, other than fried clams and the 28 flavors of ice cream, the food at Hojo's was not exciting or gourmet, and it wasn't supposed to be. Quality in the first place meant predictability, and this goes a little bit against the modern aesthetic, which tends to emphasize individuality and artisanal and handmade. In the period, really, most of the 20th century, the last thing the American consumer wanted was something that was handmade or artisanal or unpredictable. They associated such things with uh, germs or uncleanliness or, you know, gristle in the mead, or uh, who knows what you're going to get if you just stop at some random place. You knew that at Howard Johnson's it would be clean, uh, that they would have the fried clams, that they would have their signature ice cream cones shaped in a triangle. Uh, All of this was both unique, that is, nobody else had fried clams like Howard Johnson's, and eminently predictable coast to coast. Paul's point is that Howard Johnson's basically invented the model for what we now think of as fast food. But Howard Johnson's had an extensive menu. It had a waitstaff. Fast food restaurants built on Hojo's success and took it a step further. It is oriented around predictability, brand recognizability, uh, and franchising. So in a way, it's apparent that is superseded or killed by its offspring, the fast food repeats this model, but it simplifies it radically and uh, is ultimately more profitable. I'm not sure that was progress, but never mind. Here we are now today inhabiting a landscape that is packed with restaurants of all sorts for all kinds of customers serving all kinds of foods. So the new question is, how are we supposed to decide where to go? Actually, that was an old question. The same guy who invented the original restaurant in France, he also wrote what was kind of the first restaurant guide, under a different name, of course. Rose de Chantoiseau. One of his other startup ideas was basically the first Yellow Pages for Paris. And here's where having a fancy double-barrel name pays off. He called himself Monsieur Rose when he was running the restaurant. And when he published his guide, which coincidentally recommended visiting this fabulous new salle de restaurant, he used the name Monsieur Chantoiseau. Sneaky. That was in France in the 1760s. There are a lot of guides today, but one of the most famous ones is the one that's supposed to have some science behind the rating. It's also French, just like the first restaurant. The Michelin Guide is a uh, remarkable guide that originated in France that uh, rates restaurants and um, does it with this meticulous, almost scientific care. That's John Colapinto. He's a colleague of mine at The New Yorker. Here at Gastropod, we promise you science along with history. So we wanted to know, is John right? Is there actually a science to the Michelin ratings? The Michelin Guide would certainly like us to think so. 
So let's find out. But first, you might be wondering why the most famous guide in the world has the same name as the tires you buy for your car. There is a simple explanation for that. The tires and the guide are produced by the same company. And it's kind of logical. When Michelin the Tire Company got started at the end of the 19th century, the idea of driving for pleasure and adventure was sort of new. I mean, cars were new. So the Michelin brothers had this brainwave to promote leisure driving. Why not put out a guide to great restaurants that you could drive to? And Dinah. This had a dual benefit. More driving, of course, means more tires. This is great for a tire company. But it also means that the money for their guidebook comes out of the tire company's marketing budget. They prided themselves on their total independence, which derived actually from the fact that the Michelin Guide is actually funded by the Michelin Tire Company, which is hugely wealthy and successful. So they don't have to rely on any kind of favors from restaurants and so on. Okay, so that's the history of Michelin, but we promised you the science. Is there a science to their famous star system? That is a little difficult to figure out, because one of the things Michelin is most famous for is their complete and total secrecy. And that's where John comes in, because he was the first journalist to ever sit down and share a meal with a Michelin inspector. Well, it was remarkable because one of the things that Michelin sort of established in its 100-year-plus history was that they would never allow a inspector to be interviewed. And in fact, part of the culture of Michelin is that they discourage their inspectors from even telling their families that they do this because a parent a proud parent might be tempted to boast, oh, my Nancy is an inspector for Michigan. And then it gets out and somehow gets back to the restaurants. They let him behind the curtain because in 2009, Michelin for the first time was expanding to the United States. And really, they wanted some press. So John went out to lunch with a Michelin inspector who shall remain nameless. They were dining at Jean-Georges, a fancy French restaurant on Central Park. The first thing we wanted to know is, if you want to scientifically evaluate a restaurant, how do you decide what to order? She told me that when she sits down at a restaurant and is trying to sort of get a grasp on what this place is capable of, she said that they're looking for something that tests the number and the quality of ingredients. And she wants something that is a little bit complex because she wants to see what the kitchen can do. She's looking to see how they combine ingredients. As she said to me, you know, they never order something like a salad or the soup. In fact, the Michelin inspector told John that she has to order something from every course, starters, mains, dessert, etc., and she has to finish everything on her plate. She often does that twice a day. I think I die. Yeah, I mean, I'm known for my heroic ability to put food away, but that is serious eating. And it's not a relaxing experience. John said she's concentrating really hard on every bite. I sort of plonkingly asked what she liked about this particular thing she was eating. And she said it's not really a question of, of liking it or not liking it. And she said it's an analysis. She said you're eating it and you're looking for the quality of the products, their freshness and so on. And she said, you know, they have to be top quality, like the best damn carrot you've ever seen. She says you're looking at whether or not every single element was prepared, as she put it, perfectly and technically correct. Then she's looking at the creativity. Was the balance of ingredients working? Was there a good and interesting texture? Did everything come together in a way that was pleasing? Did one ingredient overpower another one? So then, after she's eaten everything and she's thought hard, and by the way, she isn't taking any notes because she's undercover, she goes home and she writes it all up. I think she said it could take her four hours to 
you know, fill in the chart for a place like Jean-Georges. These charts have all the inspector's assessments of the quality of the ingredients, the technical perfection of the cooking, the creativity, the balance of flavors, everything to do with assessing the food. And that goes into a restaurant's star rating. Restaurants that make it into the guide can either get a no-star mention all the way up to three stars for the food. Michelin recognizes that eating out isn't just about the food. There's a whole experience going on. So they have their inspectors evaluate the waitstaff and the ambiance and the furnishings. Overall, how great do you feel eating there? That goes into this knife and fork symbol. They call it couvert. And obviously, that's more subjective. But here's the thing. Although Michelin says that the food is evaluated by stars and the ambiance by couvert ratings and these are entirely separate things, well, sometimes that seems like, sure, that's the theory, but actually the ambiance has an effect on the star rating too. Dan Barber is the chef owner of a restaurant in New York called Blue Hill. He also owns another one outside the city called Blue Hill at Stone Barns. But the one in New York, that restaurant received one Michelin star. And actually, Dan thinks that to get a second Michelin star, the things he'd have to change are to do with the ambiance more so than the food. We've talked to Dan before. You should definitely check out that episode. It's called Dan Barber's Quest for Flavor. So we gave him a quick call. We caught him on his cell phone just as he was prepping for service, so the sound is pretty rough. Sorry. I'm not against going for a second Michelin star or a third Michelin star. I'm above it. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to have more stars, but I, I don't know that that's the goal of Blue Hill, New York. Because in order to get there, I think, you know, you'd have to do a lot of things in the ecosystem of dining, you know, that would take away from the experience of Blue Hill, New York. I mean, including probably taking paper off the tables and including probably spreading out the tables more and including, you know, different wine glasses and using and all the things that go into the experience of high-end dining. Dan thinks, and this seems to be pretty common for chefs at his level, everyone thinks that to get a second or a third star, they have to have the top elements of expensive fine dining, white tablecloths, fine crystal glass, hovering waitstaff, even though that's not what the Michelin website says. To be fair, Michelin comes out of the French tradition. And I mean, really, let's remember, the French did invent the restaurant. And so Dan's point is, it makes sense that the Michelin Guide tends to favor that ideal of French fine dining. That's just its DNA, based on 100 years of history. Dan doesn't want to make dramatic changes to Blue Hill in Manhattan, but that doesn't mean he doesn't think about Michelin a lot. Chefs get pretty obsessed about these stars. It's stressful not to have a star. It's stressful to get one and then worry about keeping it. And then there's the matter of getting more stars. Richard Corain is Danny Meyer's right-hand man for his world-famous restaurants. Several of them have Michelin stars. For us, it's not keeping them. It's how do we get another one? And so uh, our work is, is sort of directed at, okay, now how do we take the bar up even another notch? Chefs do believe that there is a way to hack the Michelin system. Like Dan said, he thinks he'd have to put cloth tablecloths on instead of paper and change up the wine glasses and have fewer tables to get another star. John agrees that chefs tie themselves into knots trying to second-guess Michelin. And it's obsessive what these poor guys go through to get the three stars. So, Nikki, what do you think? Is there a science to the Michelin stars? I think in as far as there is a really rigorous process and a template for evaluating the food the way John described, sure. But how much can judging food ever be scientific, you know? And the ambient stuff is personal for sure. My feeling is the way it's rated, that does seem to mean that it's mostly super expensive French-style restaurants that get the most stars. And from the way chefs try to game the system by upgrading their stemware and their tablecloths and all of that, 
It does seem like the line separating ambiance and stars is a fuzzy one. So then what is the point of Michelin? We asked that to everyone we spoke to this episode. Dan Barber, the chef, John Colapinto, the journalist who had lunch with an inspector, Paul Friedman, the historian, and they all had slightly different takes. You know, I don't want to sound like an old crank, uh, but I'm an old crank. I mean, just the levels of expertise that that person brings to an understanding of what restaurants are doing makes a Michelin inspector's evaluation of a restaurant, to my mind, exponentially better than Joe Blow, who, you know, I like to go to a lot of restaurants. I know what a good restaurant, I know what I like. I'm sorry, I really think they bring something to the table. Crank or no, John is a full-on fan. He trusts the Michelin formula. Dan? Well, Dan's a full-on fan too, but he does see an issue with Michelin's bias towards haute cuisine. So I have problems with the democracy of the Michelin thing. Like, I also see the point of, like, something that has backbone. But how do you rank a three-star Michelin with a, you know, Bangkok street food? That's kind of Paul's point. The world of restaurant guides has changed because the world of restaurants has changed. I think that the Michelin guide doesn't actually work in countries that have such a diversity of restaurants. The Michelin guide was designed for France at a time when you knew what you were rating. But I don't think that the system works very well for places like New York or Tokyo or San Francisco, because how do you compare a modest Ethiopian restaurant to a a high-end farm-to-table place to a traditional French restaurant? All of this care of objectivity, anonymity, system, which is a very French kind of way of ordering the universe, applies better to the European guides. I think that the Michelin guide for New York is, you know, maybe a source of suggestions. But as an actual ranking, frankly, in my opinion, it's borderline useless. The restaurant and the restaurant guide, they may have started out as a French invention, but this is way bigger than France now. Well, the decline of French cuisine as dominating the entire world definition of elegant and high-end cuisine is the big story of the last 30 years. And it's not that France has ceased to produce wonderful cuisine. It's just that it doesn't define it anymore. And actually, I think that's pretty great. France has delightful food, but so do a lot of countries and culinary traditions. Restaurants have made a lot of progress in terms of catering for a much broader range of the population, too. And that's really, really important. But not everything in the world of restaurants has improved in the past century and a half. I mean, Just think back to the Delmonico's menu with its fabulous range of local wild food. Well, I think we're accustomed to thinking that we live in the best possible or best historically real world of American cuisine. Never have there been so many restaurants, never has there been so much attention to ingredients, never have there been so many chefs who are creative and celebrated. But um, if there was one purpose I had in mind in doing this project, because I'm a historian, it was to call attention to the fact that the past has many enviable qualities. Uh, You know, that when the planet had only uh, 500 million people instead of 8 billion, uh, the environment was richer and uh, easier to exploit and offered things that we can only dream about. I'm now drooling imagining Delmonico's wild duck and wild celery. So at the time, they were locavore because they had to be. Now locavore is making a comeback because it's what diners actually want. We're circling back to the origins of our restaurants. According to Rebecca, that's not the only way restaurants are coming full circle. How many restaurant menus indicate 
uh, which dishes are vegetarian, which ones are low-carb, which ones are gluten-free. There are so many different sensitivities, sensibilities, uh, that restaurant patrons today feel and consider to be legitimate medical conditions, and they probably are. So I do think that people's attentiveness to their individual medicalized sensibilities is something that has much in common with the culture in which restaurants were invented in the first place. Since it was invented 250 years ago, the restaurant has made great strides. You have restaurants for all sorts of people, run by all sorts of people, and catering to all levels of income and all kinds of different tastes. Which is awesome. But of course, this isn't restaurant utopia here. There are still all sorts of problems at restaurants, too. The pay, the whole system of tipping, the divide between the kitchen staff and the wait staff, the working conditions. These are all issues that, trust us, we are going to come back to these in future episodes. And that's really why restaurants matter. Because the restaurant as a public space it ends up reflecting a lot of where we're at as a society. Thanks to Paul Friedman, author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America, and Rebecca Spang, author of The Invention of the Restaurant. Thanks also to John Colapinto at The New Yorker, to Chef Dan Barber of Blue Hill in New York and Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and Richard Crane of the Union Square Hospitality Group. Thanks to our friends and listeners for sharing their restaurant remembrances with us. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode all about chocolate. I cannot wait. <laughs>